Hi again. Thank you for tuning into Stroke Busters, a podcast presented by the Institute for Stroke and Cerebrovascular Diseases at UT Health Houston in Houston, Texas. The purpose of this podcast is to bring you the latest news and discussion in stroke, stroke care, research, community, and academia. I'm Amy Quinn, Communications Director for the Stroke Institute. Today, we are joined by Dr. James Grada, who, after joining UT Houston faculty in 1979, established the UT Houston Stroke Program and developed its NIH-funded fellowship training program. He has been continuously funded to carry out translational research and acute stroke treatment and played a leading role in many clinical research studies, including a TPA stroke study. In 2013, Dr. Grada stepped down as department chair and moved his practice to Memorial Hermann Hospital to lead the Mobile Stroke Unit Consortium, the nation's first mobile stroke unit to deliver TPA and other stroke therapies wherever the stroke occurs. Dr. Grada joined us for a vascular neurology grand rounds and stuck around to record this episode with one of our vascular neurology fellows, Mohamed Raup, to answer some more questions so that we can share more of his insight and research. Let's dive right in. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Rauf Chaudhary, one of the Stroke Fellow here in UT Houston. Uh, welcome to another um, episode of uh, IUT podcast named as Stroke Busters. Uh, today, we have the privilege uh, to have Dr. Jim Grota, a world-renowned researcher with us. Uh, uh, just a brief introduction about Dr. Grota. He uh, joined as a faculty in UT Houston back in 1979 has been a um, world renowned leader in stroke research, especially acute ischemic stroke. Um, he was uh, part of the team led to uh, development of TPA as the first line treatment for acute ischemic stroke um, and uh, has been remained uh, served as a chair for uh, neurology department here in UT Houston from 2006 to 13. And then uh, now he's uh, leading the first mobile stroke unit um, uh, here in Memorial um, Hermann Hospital. Uh, has been has published about like 500 scientific manuscripts and uh, is is an author of an authoritative textbook on stroke. Um, so without any further delay, I would uh, um, invite a herb and Grota. Thank you, Dr. Grota, uh, for being with us today. Thanks, Ralph. Uh, so, thank you, Dr. Grota. First of all, thanks a lot for your very inspiring uh, grand, role, uh, grand round talk about uh, um, about your like uh, history of stroke and what you think the future holds for stroke uh, in terms of acute ischemic stroke care. Um, just for interest of our audience, I would request you to uh, briefly talk about your early career and what led you uh, to have your interest in neurology and especially in stroke care. In neurology and stroke, okay, as far as neurology is concerned, you know, I, uh, not to sound trite, but you know, when I was a kid, I just was interested in doing something in the unknown and the brain just seemed to be, you know, totally unknown, unexplored territory for me. And, um, you know, it, it uh, couldn't be an astronaut. So I, I thought neurology would be a challenge. And then I 
when I got into college, I sort of got involved in, you know, all sorts of, it was the, it was the age of Aquarius, right? And people started thinking about brain exploration and, and enhancement and stuff like that. It just, it became more and more interesting. So I, that's what got me interested in it. Um, and then um, when I was in medical school, I just happened to be good in neuroanatomy. So that's sort of, I, I was one of the few people that could, in my class, that could figure out the three-dimensional nature of the ventricles, I think. And uh, back in the day before there was, a, you know, there was no brain imaging. We had to dissect the brain and look at brain models. Anyway, so once, once you know, you, once I got a good score and good grade in neuroanatomy, I said, oh, I'm good in something. So maybe I should, I should pursue this. So that's what got me interested in neurology. And then, of course, um, the more I did, the more I liked it, and particularly then enjoyed my neurosurgery rotations and um, actually enjoyed those clinical rotations the most. Um, but I didn't really enjoy actually doing the surgery. I just enjoyed taking care of the sick patients. Um, and uh, so that's sort of what got me interested in stroke. I realized these were sick patients. I enjoyed taking care of them. And I was also interested in public health and something that, that made a difference to um, a large number of people. I wasn't interested in working in a rare uh, disease that, that I didn't think would ever be treated. I, it seemed to me that stroke was something I could understand, affected a lot of people. And if we could do something about it, it, it would make a difference. Very nice. And uh, can you briefly uh, add about like uh, how you got interested in research and especially how you became part of the team leading to a development of TPA for uh, acute ischemic stroke? Well, I never did any research in my residency. I, I mean, I didn't, it wasn't something that residents were really where I was led to do. Um, I had a, um, one of my, I was a, a senior uh, PGY4 resident, uh, one of the junior faculty uh, joined, in fact, he was a neuromuscular guy, Steve Ringel, ultimately became head of the American Academy of Neurology. And um, he had done his fellowship and, 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 and actually worked with King Engel to identify the, the cause of myasthenia as an antibody the bound acetylcholine receptor. Anyway, he had NIH funding, and he was just a guy just like me. And we had, and in fact, his, his wife and my wife had been friends growing up. I realized, well, you know, this isn't rocket science. If he could be do research, I could do research. And um, so it sort of removed some of the mystery associated with it. And then, actually, I went into private practice just for family reasons after my residency. I didn't really have a good job. My wife didn't want me to do a fellowship. She didn't want to move anymore. So I went into private practice and I went around seeing patients that I couldn't do anything about. And I said, you know, this is just, I, 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 I need to push the field forward. Like this is the neurology is, it's just too much adios and diagnose, diagnose and adios. So I bailed out of my private practice after a year and did a fellowship in what I wanted to do in cerebral blood flow in the first place. And that's when I got interested in research and, um, and really in order to develop a treatment. 
and it was true whether it was prevention. But initially, I was more interested in acute stroke treatment, but the whole field was just opening up as a result of the, you know, the observations that were made by the Boston group and others. You know, we were just learning about stroke, and it was, it was, it seemed so obvious of of how we should be able to treat this disease. So, um, but but I also realized we needed to learn how to do research, and I I did. Nobody ever taught me. I just learned on the fly. I, I think the first research trial I did was uh, the ticlopidine study of um, ticlopidine against uh, compared to aspirin, um, so-called TAS trial. And uh, that's, we enrolled the largest number of patients over there in the UT professional building. I, I ran the carotid ultrasound lab. So everybody who was referred to the carotid ultrasound lab had, had carotid disease, they qualified. We were one of the largest enrolling centers into the trial. And so as a result, even though I was just an assistant professor, because we were active in the trial, and this is an important point, if you do clinical trials as a junior investigator, even though you're just one site, if you enroll a lot of patients and you do a good job, the stroke, the leadership of that trial is going to recognize you as somebody who's interested and turned on about clinical research. And they're going to and you're going to be able to get, and you should try to get, involved in the in the actual execution of the study. So, let's say you start doing a the next version of the NA1 trial or an endovascular trial. If you enroll a lot of patients, you're you're going to become a leader in that study, and you'll be recognized, and that's how you you become identified as a good clinical researcher. It's, it's all about doing it. Very nice. Uh, yeah, um, thank you for elaborating this part because many of, um, like, especially the uh, trainees like me that are listed in the career, we believe that uh, you are like a born researcher and then you go from there. At least basically, as you elaborated, mostly you're interest-based and the more you push, the more you understand. Um, so, Thank you for that. I guess I would just say one other thing, and that's true in life in general. You know, a lot of things you've never done before because you've not been trained or, or, or you know, may think, oh, I can't do that. You know, only you have to have special training or you have to be smarter than I am. I guarantee you in almost anything you want to do, there are people who've succeeded. Once you've gotten through medical school and a difficult residency and all the training and been as successful as any graduate of our training program has been, you have the ability to do anything. You're just as smart, just as bright, just as capable as the people who've succeeded who are older than you. You just can't be daunted, just go and do it. And, um, and whether, that's a, whether that's in clinical research or in a new job or even in an so that's what I told myself before I went bungee jumping. I said a lot of people who are more you know, less brave than you have done this. So. <laughs> Definitely, it's very um, motivational when we hear um, from people who like you have accomplished a lot in their life. Uh, so, can you also add a little bit like how you thought about the mobile stroke unit? And uh, I mean, obviously, their studies have been done which showed its effectiveness so yeah. led you to from tpa to mobile stroke unit yeah well we've always been a champion of early treatment i mean you know you couldn't have been in the nins trial and not 
recognize the importance of early treatment. And the data all show, you know, as we know from TPA, the earlier the treatment, the better. We were all focused on, you know, trying to speed up our emergency department treatment. And, you know, when Andrew Barreto here was a fellow, we were hammering on the emergency room, even back then on speeding up our door to groin puncture times when we were doing endovascular treatment and our, and our door to needle times. Um, but it really, I hadn't really thought about the pre-hospital thing until we had a fellow here, a visiting fellow from Italy, um, uh, Clotilde Balucani, who was visiting us. And she, I was in rounds one day, she said, have you read about what this study from Fassbender? And I hadn't read it, the initial study by Klaus Fassbender on its mobile stroke unit. And, but as soon as I saw it, I said, this is obviously something that we, should do here because we already had such a good working relationship with the fire department and it was basically what we were doing already in the emergency room just moving it more acutely so um uh that's how i got interested in it and um i was fortunate uh, i was able to go out and um get a grateful patient namely mattress mac who was a patient of mine and um as you know sort of a a um, guy who thinks outside the box and willing to take risk. He obviously willing to take, you think that spending, you know, I, I guess I, I like it to think of he, he puts how many millions of dollars on the Astros and the University of Houston. So he obviously knows how to take a risk. Well, he took a $1 million bet on the mobile stroke and he obviously won. So and the one thing he asked me, I took him to lunch over there at the, what now is the, I don't even know if it's still in existence. The restaurant up above the waterfall there that used to be called Trevisio's. Anyway, I said, I said, I gave him, pitched my idea to him. He says, well, Jim, he said, who's going to actually do this? I said, I am. He said, are you going to be out on the mobile stroke and actually doing it yourself? And I said, yeah. He said, well, then I'll give you the money. And um, so that's another important lesson is that you can't delegate if, in, in anything you want to do. If you want it done right, you got to make sure that you either do it or make sure that the people you delegate to do it are doing it right. And, and, and that's what people want to see, particularly if they're going to give you money. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, that's, this is actually, to be honest, this is the man, like, like this inspiration, which I, um, I kind of had the experience, uh, working with you. Uh, it's great. Like, uh, basically you have a lot of like uh, drive and inspiration. And, uh, so other thing, um, I wanted to ask, like, what do you think, what future holds, um, uh, in terms of like stroke, um, care? Right. Well, I do think that the biggest challenge in stroke treatment is increasing the number of people we can treat. In reality, 20% at the most of stroke patients, you know, get TPA, even in the best, most educated and affluent areas. Um, if we could just increase that by, you know, 10%, um, that probably would do more in terms of improving outcomes or even 20% than any new drug or catheter we could come up with. Um, and so I do think that, but how do we do that? First of all, I think we have to make medical care less expensive and less daunting to people to, to call 911. People don't 
People are struggling financially. They don't want to call 911. They're afraid of what's going to happen to them in the emergency department. Somehow we need to demystify that and make it easier uh, for people to, and, and also we need to somehow identify strokes, maybe using um, AI. I mean, you think about it, uh, when people do call 911, we need to be able to identify better if chatbot can can identify a, you know, what I'm saying and, and write an essay based on a few words I give it, I should be able to listen to somebody's call on a, on a, on a 911 call and be able to determine if that patient's having a stroke or not. Things like yeah. that, I think, are um, where, where we can make a real big impact. Then, of course, the manpower issue. We, we still have plenty of vascular neurologists in Houston, Texas, but we don't have enough of them you know, in, in other smaller communities where people are having strokes and where we can, if, if we had them, we'd be able to achieve treatment a lot faster. And then, of course, you know, expanding tele, telemedicine. So I do think systems of care is a huge issue. And that's not just for everybody, not just solving disparities, but just in general. Of course, it also is a way to address our problems with disparities. I think in prevention, I do think that, um, you know, one of the challenges and one of the slides I didn't show is this issue about personalized medicine. You know, the problem with clinical trials is it's not personalized medicine. We take everybody who's got a clinical condition and we randomize them to a drug without, you know, dissecting the subpopulations within them. And what, what we um, are beginning to start building subpopulations into our clinical trials and biomarkers and things like that, that can help us maybe personalize better. Um, and I, I do think that's a challenge in, in our clinical trial design in terms of prevention. Um, so I think, I think those are some of the main themes besides what I mentioned in my talk. Yeah, very nice. Um, Last but not the least, uh, just um, what are your advice for the um, incoming like residents or fellows who are currently in training, uh, who are interested in stroke and uh, how they should like? Uh, yeah. Well, for the residents, I would say that um, you know your residency is is just like when you're in medical school, you want to expose yourself to as many different areas of medicine as possible. It's your one chance, even if you're going into neurology to learn something about surgery or orthopedics or OBGYN, you have to go. You went into medicine because you're interested in medicine and you went into neurology because you're interested in neurology. So even though you're maybe interested in stroke or multiple sclerosis, you need to spend your time and learn all the areas of this wonderful field as a resident. And then as a fellow though, you, I, I would focus on Vladimir Hutchinsky's advice, advice to me, and that is start to focus down on something, on a practical issue. Um, you know, when in doubt, stay, keep your options open, but gradually start focusing down on, at least if you want to go into an academic career, on some area that you want to um, focus on. Now, if, and if you are not going to go into, not focused on an academic career and want to go out into practice, that's fine. I still think that 
Clinical research is the spice that makes stroke care interesting. So I would urge that you're going to learn how to do clinical research as a fellow. So try to take advantage of the clinical research and learning as much as possible about the clinical research that's going on here so that when you go out and to practice as a hospitalist or wherever, whatever you're going to do outside of the academic setting, you can still participate in clinical trials and even become a leader in clinical trials. I mean, the, the, some of the most valuable people in our clinical trials networks, like at StrokeNet and others, are not people in academic centers, but in places like Chattanooga, Tennessee, where they have a huge clinical trial network with built into their practice. So um, uh, I, I would urge you all to keep research as, as I would call it, the spice in your practice. Perfect. Uh, well, thank you, Dr. Grotta, for your time. I really appreciate it. I uh, mean, uh, hey, well, thank you for letting me hold forth. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Good. And that's it for this episode of Stroke Busters. As always, ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and are not a substitute for expert medical advice. Always contact your doctor before starting any program or therapy to make sure you are getting the best care tailored to your unique situation. UT Health Stroke is on social media. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook at UT Health Stroke to stay updated on upcoming episodes, share with colleagues, friends, and family. For updates and the latest news on the Stroke Institute, go online to uth.edu forward slash stroke hyphen institute. Until next time, take care. <laughs>